Initializing now. You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, December 19th, 2006, Special Release 1. Today's topic is the Iraq Dilemma. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org, you can Skype us at intice, or you can IM us at int underscore ice on Yahoo, or intellectual ice, all one word, on AIM. Hello everyone and welcome back. This is Rob and today we're presenting a single segment instead of a complete episode. Our guest is an American working in Finland who's come up with an extremely creative solution to America's problems in Iraq. The word dilemma comes from Greek roots meaning two propositions. It's a situation where you're presented with two choices about what path to take. It's generally used when neither of the paths are particularly appealing. A false dilemma is a classical fallacy where the two options are presented as the only two options, although other possibilities may exist. False dilemmas aren't always created out of a purposeful desire to deceive. More often than not, they're created from an excessive concentration on one aspect of a problem without viewing the problem and the resources available to solve it as a whole. Take the example of us noticing a large hairy spider next to our hand. Because of the fight-or-flight reflex that takes over, a typical reaction is to either squish it or jump away, or sometimes both. If we stop to think about it, there are many other solutions. Hairy spiders are almost universally less aggressive than the sleek ones, so you're likely to be pretty safe. Moving the spiders somewhere outdoors where they can do you the service of eating mosquitoes would be to your benefit. If you know the species is harmless, you can even choose to ignore it and let it hunt indoor bugs for you. Complex dilemmas, however, often require a form of creative rule-breaking, often referred to as diagonal thinking or thinking outside the box. What I'm presenting to you today is an excellent example of diagonal thinking. I've always thought it more important to help people learn how to think instead of telling them what to think. In that vein, I'd like the audience to, while listening, spend their time not just listening to the points and counterpoints and assessing their validity, but also identify how our guest came up with the ideas that resulted in this solution. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce our guest, Dr. David Sinclair. You may remember him from our earlier segments on alcoholism and panic disorders. Hello, David. Hello. How you doing? Just fine. So what you're about to present is an original solution to the problem in Iraq. That's some pretty picked-over territory right now. How did you manage to come up with something that hasn't been suggested before? Actually, sort of accidental. It was a matter of thinking out of the envelope, going in a new direction. What everybody else has been thinking about is not even an envelope. It's a single dimension. If you look at the solutions that have been put out, they almost all are in one dimension of how many American soldiers should there be in Iraq. Bush is saying, stay the course, 140,000. McCain is saying, we've got to have 500,000 in there. Some Democrats are saying, bring it down to 70,000. Well, I personally was saying, make it zero. This is one single dimension. As long as you're thinking on that dimension, we're not going to come up with anything new. In fact, we've looked at every point on there, and we've become very good at criticizing everybody else's point. We have to find something that Democrats can agree upon, that Republicans can agree about doing. In order to come up with this, we have to move off of that dimension and look in a new direction. So where did you look? I think the most important thing is to look at other people's viewpoints. What viewpoint is it as to how many troops should be going to Iraq? The one thing that a politician can do is to choose how many troops he sends over to Iraq. That's the one real control he has. And so we have been thinking along the line of 
Bush says this number, McLean says that number. The polarization America has led all of us to talking on this one dimension. We have to get off of this dimension and the politician's viewpoint and, well, for instance, consider the viewpoint of the Iraq civilian. Imagine you're an Iraq woman in Baghdad and you're looking out your door and there are these troops going by, the black and white American faces going by with all their weapons. Imagine what your reaction is. It'd be the same reaction that everyone has had to an occupying army. You hate them out there. You're afraid of them. They're different. They're going to be infidels in your mosque. You want them out of there. If you turn the situation around to the viewpoint of the American soldier, he can look over to the Iraqi woman and say, Listen, lady, I don't want to be here any more than you do. I want me to be here. Having to be a policeman in a country where he doesn't know the language, he doesn't understand the culture, he can't tell the difference from the good guys and the bad guys. This is an impossible task to ask of anybody. It's a horrible thing that we've asked the soldiers to do. From both of these points of view, the most important thing to do is to bring the American soldiers out of the cities. If you look at the demands that have been put out, this is exactly what Prime Minister Maliki of Iraq demanded of Bush. He said that he was talking to Bush and he insisted not American troops go home, but American troops have to get out of the cities. The health minister who announced that there were 150,000 civilian casualties in Iraq was saying the same thing. If you listen to what the American soldiers are saying, it's what they're saying. It's what the American military is saying. And I must say I was a bit surprised when I was reading Rumsfeld's recommendations that he was saying the same thing. It's an obvious thing. A major cause of the problems are simply physically being in the face of the people there. So this is the first step. I think that there is a good chance this will happen. Okay, so we get the soldiers out of the city. Then what? Where do we send the soldiers, and how do we keep the Iraqis from killing each other once they're gone? That is the critical point that hasn't been taken up, and I think there is a novel solution here. Of course, we want to bring many of them home. That is true. But if we are looking at the situation that is in Iraq, we also have to face the fact that there is a very good chance of a civil war. Iraq is really three countries. There's the Kurdish country, the Shiite country, and the Sunni country. They already are fighting each other. The sectarian fighting is going on. Why are they fighting? Some of the things we can't do anything about. There has been this debate between the Shiites and the Sunnis for a thousand years. We can't do anything about that. But they lived together before we came in. Maybe they could again. And we can't do too much about the revenge. But from an objective viewpoint, there is one thing that is critically important. Each one of the factions is fighting over the key resources of the country, particularly oil. There are other things like the army and the money from it, the central government. But in Iraq, the big treasure, the one thing that is most valuable, most important, is the oil. Now, I don't really think that any one of the factions wants to have the other one impoverished. I think if you were to ask a Shiite leader if he wants to see the Sunnis being absolutely broke with no money coming in whatsoever, he would say no. But none of the factions dares let the other ones get control. And so they're fighting over it. This is the main bone of contention, the main physical objective cause for the civil war. What could be done about it? If we look back, the real responsibility for protecting the oil belongs to America. 
And this is international law. When you take over a country, you're responsible for it and for protecting the resources. Before we went into Iraq, there were big statements by the American government that we would be responsible for the oil, but we really haven't done it. We acted as if we didn't care about the oil at all. Maybe this is because so many European intellectuals were saying the only reason we're going in is for the oil. But what we did was benign neglect. At the very beginning, Americans passed most of the responsibility over to the British, and the British really didn't care about it either. Uh, they passed the responsibility over to a British security company called Olive Group, and they didn't want to handle it, so they hired a bunch of paramilitaries, the Oil Protection Force, which just happens to be composed mainly of Sunnis from Saddam's army. And so now there's this little army trying to take care of the southern oil, and they have been infiltrated by the Shiites, and they're fighting and killing each other already. In the north, the Americans hired a South African company, and they hired paramilitary groups. We haven't paid attention to the responsibility, and as a result, there has been very poor security. Iraq used to produce about three and a half million barrels a day of oil. When sanctions came in, they went down to two and a half million, and now they're down to less than two million a day. In April, when the prices of oil were at their all-time high of $70 a barrel or more, Iraq was at its lowest production ever since the beginning of sanctions because of the sabotage, because there wasn't proper protection. Now let's go back to the present situation. There is the opportunity that we could take personal responsibility for protecting the oil because of a very nice feature of geography. When I was working on this, the idea that we should protect the oil fields and give the money back to the Iraqis seemed like a great idea, but I wasn't sure whether it could be done. And then I looked closer and closer at the geography, and it turned out to be perfect. There was this one spot in the southern tip of Iraq. It's in the middle of the desert. Uh, the borders on two sides are water. The third side is the Kuwait border, and the fourth border is desert that's easily defended, and it controls 71% of the oil. We could take maybe 20% of the soldiers that we have right now and redeploy them down into this enclave. Now, down here, they wouldn't be doing policeman work. There's nobody else around. It's almost a completely uninhabited area. So instead of trying to tell the difference between the good guys and the bad guys, they have to be able to tell the difference between an insurgent and a rock. That we can do. <laughs> no, that doesn't sound too tough. No, we can do deserts. <laughs> We're good at it. We've proven this. And going back to the American soldier's perspective, imagine the difference it would make to a volunteer soldier. Instead of being asked to do a task that, frankly, he wasn't cut out to do, the policeman job he wasn't trained to do, the equipment's not there. And instead, to be down here protecting the perimeters out in the desert having a quick reaction force so that they can give air support if there's real problems occurring anywhere they can be called in to put them down and also being a defense of the oil field so that none of the other countries are going to come in and take them over this is something our soldiers can do very well and it's an important job i think they would like doing it and they could make the security there be extremely high 
This would allow the repair of all the oil fields, modernization to take place, and the amount of oil coming out could go back up to those levels of three and a half billion, which would produce tremendous amounts of profits. Okay, the obvious question here is with all this money rolling in, who can be trusted to make sure that most of it at least gets back to the Iraqi people? Exactly. The most important thing here is that we must make sure that everyone in the world, including the Iraqis, knows that the profits are going back to the Iraqi people. The Americans are getting not a single cent from the profits. My own suggestion would be the United Nations to come in. I'm not sure what is the best auditing, but it must be done in a way so that everyone is sure that the money is going back to the Iraqis. This would be very good for the reconstruction of Iraq. If the money was coming back into Iraq in increased amounts, then all of the other things that haven't been possible could be done. To begin with, the first thing is simply natural gas. A lot of the things in Iraq run on natural gas, but natural gas is a byproduct there producing petroleum. Also bringing back the water supply and the electricity and picking up the trash, all the other things, there would be money to do this. Okay, that sounds like a decent solution, but right now Iraq has one of the highest levels of corruption anywhere in the world. So how do you make sure that when you hand this money over to them that you're not just making a few hundred people filthy rich and hoping that it'll do some good? I think you have a good point that we have to consider how we're using the money. But I wouldn't worry too much about what we call corruption. We're not crusaders. We're coming in from a different culture. We're coming in from where I live. It's the most transparent country on earth. And it is difficult for us to understand the way that the culture is in Iraq. What we have done in the past in order to try to control the behavior there it's what I call the cowboy approach. I have this vision of Bush. Excuse me, I'm Bush bashing right now. But uh, I have this image of Bush as the little cowboy coming in and pulling up his six guns and aiming them at the Iraqis and saying, hands up and you got to do what I tell you to. Now, this worked in the Wild West with the rugged individualist there. You hold a gun at somebody and they better do what you're telling them to do. But Iraq has had a solution for this. It's an ancient culture. And the people have been there since time knows when. Everybody is connected to a huge web of relatives and associates. So if I'm an Iraqi and you hold a gun at me, I say, ha, shoot me. And my brothers and my cousins will kill you and your family and your entire clan. Revenge. Revenge is the solution for the cowboy way of doing things. There is, however, a way of doing things that has worked in Iraq. To us, we call it corruption. But to them, it's standard operating procedure. And this is the money comes down from the leaders at the top. And most recently was Saddam Hussein. He bought the loyalty of a group of people underneath of him, and they took the money they got and bought the loyalty and the support from the people below them, and they bought the support and the work and the votes from the people below them. The state, with the petrodollars, has been the main employer in Iraq for decades. It's the way the place runs. So I think we should use this. Even Rumsfeld was suggesting the same thing, that we should give money to some of the leaders. But again, we have to go back to the threat of civil war. Each one of the three factions are going to be competing. 
there is pretty good agreement that the only solution to avoid civil war in Iraq is to partition the power. Think of this. No Sunni wants to have a Shiite being his boss, his leader, the one he has to follow. They've lived for years with being the bosses, and they cannot imagine having Shiites being their bosses. They, they won't have it. On the other hand, the Shiites have been subjugated and during the Saddam period gassed and really, well, annihilated. They are not willing to go back and have Sunni be the leader over top of them again. The Kurds are not willing to have a Sunni or a Shiite be their leader. So the only thing to do is somehow have Kurdish leaders over Kurds and Sunni leaders over Sunnis and Shiite leaders over Shiites. That's partition, partition of the leadership. That's the only way to avoid civil war. But there's a real dilemma here. If we divide the country into three parts, we have a tremendous risk of regional war. If we have a country of Shiite Iraq in the south, and they are worried about the Sunnis trying to take over their oil fields, then they can cry to Iran and say, hey, we need help. And Iran will come over, maybe taking over the Shiites there, but at least coming in. Syria might come in to help out the Sunnis. None of the neighboring countries want this, particularly not Turkey. Turkey definitely does not want an independent Kurdistan. And each one of the countries has said that they do not want this division. They don't want to have the chaos and refugees that it would cause. So we must keep the country together to avoid regional war. We must split the power apart in order to avoid civil war. How can you deal with a dilemma like that? That is a good question. It doesn't sound like something that any of the current solutions address. No, no. There is nothing that has been mentioned to even consider the problem. But we could do this with the petrodollars. If we are controlling the enclave and the money that's coming in, we can use this money and distribute it among the three different factions. In effect, we would be giving an equal portion to the Sunnis and to the Shiites and to the Kurds. So the Shiite leaders would then be getting the money coming in from the oil profits, and they would be passing it down to their people. The Sunni leaders would be passing it down to their people. The Kurdish leaders pass it down to their people. From the viewpoint of the man in the street, Sunni, he looks up at a chain of command that he owes his allegiance to, and it's only Sunnis all the way to the top. He does not have a Shiite leader above him. Because the power flows with the dollars, we can divide the power to partition it into three equal parts. At the same time, the country itself is staying united. There is no independent country of Shiite Iraq, no Kurdistan. We've kept our promise to Turkey, and they're not going to be able to start a regional war, at least less chance of this. And it sounds like it'd be an effective solution to the fair division problem. Well, I think there are lots of details that need to be worked out on this. There are various ways of dividing the money and partitioning it out equally. More thought has to be given to this. I've come up with one concrete example, but it's only an example, and I think this is something that people could mill about. Uh, it had been suggested by some other people, this was mentioned in the Baker-Hamilton report, that maybe the money should all be given to each Iraqi individual person. Uh, that's a good idea, but as they point out, there's no way to do this. The, the mechanism for doing it is not there, they're probably right. But one suggestion 
one possibility for doing this is that we take the oil profits and right now, of course, these are going to the central government. The first thing we do is to agree that we are going to be paying for the Iraqi army from this directly. One of the other plums that the three groups might be fighting over is going to be the Iraqi army. If it's completely under the control of the central government, and if that is Shiite, then there's a plum that's fallen and a good chance for civil war coming from it. By having the direct control, we take that out of contention. Then with the rest of the money, we take some of it and set up a thing I call a representative fund. There is this council of representatives that was elected. This is the Congress, essentially, of Iraq. The 275 representatives were voted upon with proportional voting. So the money could be divided into 275 parts and assigned to these 275 constituencies. The representatives would then have responsibility for deciding how it is used. The fund to begin with could be small, increasing if the central government is going to act fairly. If they're being trusted by all three factions, then they continue getting the lion's share of the oil profits. If, on the other hand, they are only helping out the Shiites, for instance, and are not trusted, then more and more of the money is proportionally distributed to the factions. So we have a way there of rewarding fair behavior by the central government. I don't think we should have micromanagement. I don't think we should try to say what the representatives are going to do with this one general rule here is that we should let the Iraqis tell us what they think is good for them. An experience I had earlier, a friend of mine is an Israeli doctor, and I was advising him that it would be very good if Israel were to open up its hospitals for Arab patients. One advantage of Western culture is our medicine. Arab leaders have to go to Paris and wherever in the West in order to get proper medical treatment. This is something we have to offer. And when the Muslim world is deciding between Osama bin Laden's idea of going back to the year 1000 or becoming westernized, one enticement we can give is our medicine. The idea was that Israel could treat the patients there and also use this as a training grounds for Arab doctors that could come in and then bring back western medicine to the Arab countries. The phrase I used was that Israel could become a giant Mayo Clinic for the Middle East. Well, I'd think that'd be beneficial to both sides. Well, other people did too, and the idea was going to eventually take into Arafat. My brilliant idea was presented to Arafat, and he listened to it, and then he spat on the ground and turned to the Israelis and said, when will you stop trying to tell us what is good for us? We will tell you what is good for us. And you know he's right. I mean, it's a brilliant idea I had, but in fact, it's not up to us to tell them what is good for them. And so forget the corruption, forget trying to tell them where they should spend their money. This is up to the individual leaders there. We can provide the money, we can make sure that we are being honest in providing it, and we can maybe choose between giving it to the central government or proportionally distributed. But beyond that, I think we should step back and let them use their money from their oil as they want to. Interesting. Okay, one of the things that people have been attempting to compare our situation in Iraq to is our previous problems with Vietnam. There are obvious parallels there, but there are some obvious problems with that analogy also. How does your solution consider these similarities and differences? In a way, I've gone through this 
and my own thinking. A year ago, my thinking was still on that one dimension, the politician's viewpoint, and what I was saying was, I remember back in the Vietnam period when they told us if we cut and ran from Vietnam that there would be a bloodbath, and we got out and there wasn't any bloodbath. That it actually has turned out being a major trading partner, which was brought home very nicely by Bush's recent trip to Hanoi. The, the irony of Bush being in Hanoi at the time when we have the tremendous chaos in Iraq really struck me. Related to this was a beautiful article by the Newsweek correspondent in Baghdad, who I guess had a vacation in a way left Baghdad and went over to Hanoi and he flew in and drove along the tree-lined boulevards and people were liking Americans and happy for our products and our trade and thinking 30 years from now is it possible in Iraq that there will be a similar situation and Americans will be as welcome and then he was pointing out that there are differences the first difference he pointed out was the oil there was some oil in Vietnam, but it wasn't the one single treasure that everyone wanted to fight over. But even more important, Vietnam was essentially one country. It held together, even though it had been divided in two, it pretty much wanted to be united as one. While, as we've said, Iraq is three different factions, there are groups that want to fight over the oil. The third point he had was this culture of revenge. Vietnam, they actually had sent letters to Americans saying that as soon as you're out of here, we're happy to bring you over and use your technological expertise for developing our country. Iraq is a culture of revenge. This is a problem. There is a danger of revenge from one faction against the other. That's a lot of what we're seeing happening right now. And there is a danger that they may want to have revenge against us Americans. From their point of view, the whole problem is caused by us being over there. To be honest, this is another reason for bringing our troops down into the enclave. We're not going to be there in their faces ready for the revenge. We're going to be out of sight and protected and meanwhile doing things that should ease the pains and get rid of the feelings of revenge. In particular, once again, using our technology. I think probably Americans are the best in the world for bringing in the modern equipment that is needed in the oil fields for not only repairing it, but getting it up, which is what is needed to bring the money into Iraq so that they can build everything up again. If we do, and we must, live up to our promises of giving all of the money to them, then this should go a long ways to at least smoothing over some of the scars from what they've had to go through. It's a different situation from Vietnam. I don't think we can just get out. I think that we do have a civil war on our hands. We have an opportunity to lessen the chances that this civil war will occur, primarily by removing the oil that they would be fighting over and using the revenue from it in order to give a power to the individual factions that they want to have. I think we can help them to keep the country together, but get rid of the fighting among each other. I should emphasize, I don't think this is the only solution by any means, but we need to think further than the narrow dimensions that we've been on. Okay, 
As mentioned before, this is some pretty picked over territory. Could you give us your thoughts on other people's solutions for this problem? I have done an analysis in the paper that's there on the Baker-Hamilton proposals or their recommendations. And uh, basically, most of them are pretty good. We'll have one problem with the embedding. Putting American troops in Iraqi units, or as Rumsfeld is suggesting, reverse embedding in which we have an Iraqi in each American unit, is assuming that we are seen as liberators and are loved by the people in the Iraqi army. I think this is a false assumption. The one thing we've shown we're not good at is interacting face-to-face with the Iraqi people. Having the embedding is one more example of direct interaction between us and them, which has not worked. Training is fine. If there's going to be training, though, uh, let it be done down in the enclave and on our terms and without having to have tremendous difficult interactions. If you're going to have reverse embedding, the Iraqi is going to have to be treated as if he was a spy because his loyalties are going to be probably with the particular faction he's with. Training is okay, but I think embedding is somewhat the same type of problem. On the other hand, I think most of the other suggestions were pretty good. Certainly, we should be talking with Iran. If we're redeploying our forces to the enclave in the south, we certainly should be telling them what we're doing. But we have to make them believe us, and that can only take place by face-to-face talks. So I'm happy with most of the Baker-Hamilton suggestions, but they don't go very far to really addressing the causes of the Civil War same way with the Rumsfeld recommendations. I was really happily surprised that in some cases he was talking about using Iraqi ways of doing things in Iraq, but they still were not addressing the root causes of the problems. So where would you like all of this to go? I think we need to have thinking for solutions. I'd be happy for people to consider this one. I think it has things in its favor, but also to start with the basic principles of looking at the viewpoints of other people and the wide implications and go on from there. Most important, it's time back in America for us to stop being so politicized. We've had an awful lot of practice at this. Bush bashing is fun. It's a major recreation. It's bashing Bush. It's a lot of fun. If I listen to the Rush Limbaugh show, I can see that the shoe fits on the other foot also. It's an awful lot of fun putting down the liberals over here. That's not going to bring a solution. We need to look at what can be done to give the major requirements to both sides. Nobody's going to get everything they want out of this. But we have to think, okay, from the Republican point of view, the conservative point of view, what are the most important things? I've tried thinking along these lines, trying to put myself in there. And I think the major concern is that we are maintaining an American presence there, a powerful force in the Middle East. And we're not just leaving, we're keeping control and we're trying to make sure that there is not going to be a civil war. I think this is what Republicans want and this would satisfy it. I think the main thing that all of us want is to bring most of the troops back. In any case, it's time to stop the fighting against each other and try to find solutions that are not on that one dimension, but provide a real way of getting out of the quagmire and solving the problem that we're in. Well, thank you, David. This sounds like if it's not going to be the solution, that it'll provide people good insight on how to find one. Well, that's what I'm hoping for, at least 
it is a new way of thinking about it that I haven't heard. Well, maybe it's a start. That's it for content today. Like the good doctor, I'm also hoping that this opens up people's viewpoints about possible solutions to our Iraq problem. One possibility that he didn't mention, but which I think is significant, is that the oil fund can be used to pay reparations from intra-Iraq fighting. If Group A kills a bunch of Group B, then put some of Group A's payment in escrow until damages can be determined. In the interest of getting this out today, I'm going to leave the closing comments off at that and leave you with your thoughts. Intellectual Iceberg is produced by Robert and Tiffany Rapplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us at Podcast Alley and Digital Podcast. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the main segment is Forgotten Love by Michael G. The music for the closing comments is Pocket Orchestra Energy by Synthetic Movements. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. The makers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you that 2 plus 2 is 5 for sufficiently high values of two. Intellectual Icebergs is released under Creative Commons license and is an Onk Infinity production.